we did write it with an audience of women in mind because it's the book that I needed when I was in the doctoral program, burning out, ending up in the hospital with stress-induced illness. I needed someone to tell me the thing you're going through is not weird. You're not crazy. You're not weak. You are really being asked to do things that the men in your position are not being asked to do, to accommodate people and their egos and their feelings in ways that men are not expected to do. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Dr. Amelia Nagoski. She's the co-author of Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, which she co-wrote with her twin sister, Dr. Emily Nagoski. She explains the physical and emotional impact of the stress cycle and how the everyday stress of 21st century life often stays trapped in our bodies and the importance of addressing both the stressor and the stress. I so much appreciate that their approach is not a quick fix, short list of things that one can do to avoid and manage burnout. Rather, they guide us on how to connect with, as they put it, our own freedom to move through the cycles of being human. That wellness is not a state of mind, but a state of action. We also touch on the importance of meaning, caring for each other, connectedness, and the importance of connecting with something larger than yourself. We discuss the large and ever-present role of the patriarchy in creating stress and emotional exhaustion, especially for women. As a white, cisgendered male, I highly recommend this book to other men looking to deepen their understanding and empathy with respect to the interpersonal and cultural impacts of how being raised as a boy, as they put it, makes it easier for boys to grow up and take on positions of power and authority and how this reality makes life harder and more painful for women and can contribute to, as they note, womanhood being in and of itself a chronic low-level stress. I'm also inspired by her message of radically caring for each other as a path to healing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nagoski. Dr. Nagoski, hi. Thank you so much for being here with me. I'm very grateful. It's my pleasure. You know, when Lee reached out to Lee, our producer, whom you've met, uh, reached out to uh, you and your sister, uh, he told me that uh, you'd be open to doing and being on our show. Uh, he also said there may be singing involved. And, oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> and I said to him, I have no idea what that means. And by the way, that is thoroughly terrifying. So yes, of course, let's, let's, let's do it and let's schedule this. I won't make you sing, but I have a hard time stopping myself. Sing at any point along the way, please. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> so you and your identical twin sister, Emily, uh, you wrote your book. It's called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And I am avoiding the temptation to ask you what it's like to write a book with your sister. I started uh, two businesses with my brother, so I have some sense, although we are not identical twins. Uh, but we have just way too much to get to. And I, I really want to get to everything that I have here in my notes. But I am fairly confident that I can promise you, our listeners, that you will walk away from this conversation thinking very differently about burnout in its entirety, and you will likely think much more deeply about your definitions of wellness and self-care. And I 
really want you to hear Amelia's powerful visions for some of the ways we need to change the world, how we need to change the world for women and for people of color. And you know, there, there's so much packed into this book and you really have to read it. There's no way we will cover all of the must read information in your book. And one thing I love is that you did not approach this topic with a quick fix, five or 10 things that one must or could do, could do to avoid and manage burnout. But instead, Believe me, I would have much preferred to write that book. It would have been so much easier. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine <laughs> that, but that wouldn't have been authentic to you and your sister. And it's not what the research says. Right. It's not in the science. Right. And it gets at the, co the core of what, what I'm thinking next, which is, you know, like truly instead you're asking the reader to go to the core, to contemplate and practice some of the foundational aspects of what it means to be human and what it means to really, really engage the continuous practice of living an examined and fulfilling life. And that the journey to unpacking burnout in your life is much more holistic and much more ongoing and not at all superficial. And I just love that. Yeah, we had to include that because that's that's the only way it works, unfortunately. I wish it, I wish it was easier. I know, yeah, there is no, no pill, no quick fix. But the good news is that once you kind of start and open the door to this possibility, you enter a new space where new opportunities and possibilities present themselves. And so every time you make a change, the next change becomes easier. So let's, let's dive into that. Okay. So first tell us about your background, uh, how, why a book on burnout. And if you can also sneak in there, uh, something that I heard your sister say, you typically out of humility, don't like to share that you are still the only women to have graduated with a doctorate, uh, in this particular Degree. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a doctorate of musical arts. It's a performance degree. That's the terminal degree in, in the performance field of music. Um, my degree is in conducting, conducting, as you may imagine quite easily is a male dominated field. When you picture a conductor, it's an old white guy with crazy hair and, you know, tuxedo or tails. And, uh, that was true that there were all men in the conducting program before me and since me, and I'm the only woman to have finished the doctorate in conducting from that school. It's a three-year degree program that took me five years to get through because I was not their typical student. Hmm. Um, so I decided, I knew when I was in the eighth grade that I was going to be a conductor. And I had a map, a plan of how I was going to achieve that. I took all the music classes in high school. I got a music degree in undergrad. I got a master's degree in choral conducting. I got a doctorate in conducting. And now I teach college where I conduct a choir and teach intro to music. I am a musician. So what am I doing co-authoring a book about stress and yes. burnout? Yes, right. I want to know. Um, we, this came about because I, in my doctoral program where I <laughs> did not belong uh, as a woman in this male-dominated program, um, I ended up in the hospital twice due to stress-induced illness. They told me to, oh, it's just stress, go home and relax. And that that did not work for me. I was a full-time doctoral student working three part-time jobs with three teenage stepchildren. Like there was no relax for me. Uh, so 
Unfortunately, the science says you don't have to relax, whatever the hell that means. You can do other things about it. And uh, Emily, at the same time that I was in my doctoral program, was writing her first book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And she was going all around the world talking to women about the science of women's sexuality. But the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being turns out to be her overall well-being. Surprise! So uh, women would come up to her after her talk and say, yeah, yeah, thanks for all that sex science. That was great. But you know what really changed everything for me is that one part of one chapter about stress and feelings. And she told me this and I was like, why are you surprised? Do you remember what I am going through with this doctoral program? And also because... I have been through conservatory training as a musician, so I've done that, you know, break them down to build them up emotional journey of relearning how to feel and express emotion for those purposes on stage. I know that it's a teachable skill. I also know that you don't necessarily learn to do it in your real life just because you learn to do it on stage. And when I did learn to apply that information to my real life, it did save my life. It got me out of hospital twice. Wow. So I reminded her of that and she said, we should write a book about that. And the answers were not what we expected them to be. Um, but it literally, I'm healthier now in my forties than I was in my twenties because of what I've learned. That's amazing. And that's a lot to manage. I can't imagine going through such an intense educational journey while navigating everything and else. Yet, if you, you asked me, are you stressed? Are you under a lot of stress? I would have been like, no, I'm just doing what people do. The expectations were just ridiculous. Yeah, just my expectations. Right, and we'll get into it. Blinded by patriarchy, full on into the human giver syndrome, and so forth. We'll, we'll get to all that. Um, okay, so let's start off with the three tools that you introduce for the heroine's journey. And I say heroine because you are clear that this book or the audience for this book is women or are women. And while reading it, I was thinking men need to read this too. And for me, you, you helped add some depth, texture, empathy, just for my continuous learning for how I understand and respond to the word patriarchy how I experience it, for how I understand and relate to the, the game that you refer to as being rigged, which I agree with, and how that disadvantages women and people of color, and on how the obstacles to meaning, creating meaning, and navigating burnout are truly, truly different for women and people of color. So this is a book, in my opinion, not just for women, but extremely helpful for women, I suppose. Yeah, we did write it with an audience of women in mind because it's the book that I needed when I was in the doctoral program, burning out, ending up in the hospital with stress-induced illness. I needed someone to tell me the thing you're going through is not weird, you're not crazy, you're not weak. You are really being asked to do things that the men in your position are not being asked to do, to accommodate people and their egos and their feelings in ways that men are not expected to do. Right. So the three, so the three main beginning right, so tools. What, right. So what are the, yeah, right. What are the three main tools for the heroine's journey? 
Yeah, this is part one of the book is three chapters and each one identifies and explains a resource that every human being carries within them that is reacting to stress and that they can use to fight, to combat, to finish the stress cycle, to let themselves feel well and whole right now. You don't have to wait for the world to become a just and equitable place, thank God, because none of us would ever be well again if we were waiting for that. Uh, and in fact, if we did wait for that, for ourselves to be well before we started fighting, uh, sorry, backwards, we can only fight and be ready to resist when we are well enough, when we have enough energy, enough time, when we're enough rest in order to commit ourselves to something beyond us. Uh, so those three things are, number one, the stress response cycle. Everybody's got one. It's that primal reaction we have to a thing that might be a threat. So if you imagine the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, you are being chased by a lion. Ah, you freak out. Adrenaline, cortisol, glucocorticoids, your heart pumps faster, your muscles tense, your blood changes where it beats in your skin, uh, and you run. And say you escape, you find somewhere safe, and the lion gives up and walks away, and now you feel the end of that cycle. You feel glad to be alive. The sun shines brighter. You love your friends and family more than you ever thought possible. And that, having completed the whole cycle, brings you to this feeling of being truly safe. Uh, unfortunately, in the 21st century, we are mostly not chased by lions. The things that stress us out are like taxes, right? So if you pay your taxes, do you feel like the sun shines brighter and you're glad to be alive and you love your friends and family all of a sudden? No, because you eliminated a thing that causes you stress, but you didn't address the stress in your body. Um, we need to separate the stressors, the thing that cause our stress from the stress, which itself, which is a cycle that happens in our body. Uh, and we do have like, I don't know, eight or nine different ways to do that, uh, which we can talk about. But let me get to the next thing, which is the next resource we carry with us. Number one was stress response cycle. Number two is the monitor. Before we get to the monitor, and I love the monitor, I find it fascinating that you thought you were doing everything you needed to do to complete the stress cycle and to go through that tunnel. But you found that you actually had to incorporate other techniques or modalities that one wouldn't typically associate with completing the stress cycle. Yeah, I was going through the motions and doing what I was told. Now, I didn't know about the stress response cycle. I just knew I was supposed to exercise 20 minutes, five times a week. I was following the rules and doing what people told me. My sister would go on long bike rides and experience like this sense of connectedness to the glory of the universe. And I thought she was making it up because I've never, <laughs> exercise has never done that for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, one of those people. Yeah, okay. I mean, some people, yay. And other people who have that experience, but don't always have access to a place to ride or walk or run or going to that place could be a source of stress. Like if you get cat called because you're a woman who's running along the road, then exercise becomes a source of stress mm -hmm. instead of a means of relieving it, you know? So it's complicated. Luckily, there are many other things besides the running 
um, like you being chased by a lion. Um, and the first one that I learned about that really worked for me was imagination. I'm a musician, so I relate to like art and stories uh, very naturally. So I would get on the elliptical machine, just like always, didn't change anything my body did. But while I was there, I imagined myself as Godzilla, romp, 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 smashing the university where I was getting my doctorate. And it was very satisfying. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was just my imagination. I don't think I need to go, you know, destroy anything. But in my imagination, at the end of that workout, I felt so relieved and powerful and ready for anything like the sun shines brighter. And I love my friends and family and I'm glad to be alive. And I was like, oh, that's what it feels like. That's what people say. So physical activity, it is the most effective generally for most people, but it's not the only way. But how would you and, know? Uh, how would you know? Say you're doing, you think, say you think you're, you're doing all the things you should be doing in quotes. How would you know that you're not doing? You don't what always. You, what might, a what big you might really problem, need. especially for women, but in the 21st century, a lot of us are taught to trust what experts, quote unquote, say about what we need to do. Um, and so we come to rely on what someone else tells us works for us or is good for us. And we unlearn the skill of being able to listen to our own bodies. I, for one, thought when somebody said, listen to your body, that it was some like made up thing. Like you don't, your body doesn't talk to you. What are you talking about? That's what? <laughs> uh, but again, like I was saying, when you open a door to one of these things, it opens another door of a room full of possibilities. Uh, so for me, as soon as I felt that that first time, and I just really glad to be alive, sunshine's brighter, love my friends and family, it's a whole mm. shift. And once the shift was big enough that I could actually notice it, like I didn't notice a more subtle cue. I didn't notice when I had mild digestive distress until I was in the hospital, right? It takes very loud noises for me to notice what my body wants to tell me. Um, and once you feel it, you can start to find it again. Um, a lot of us don't know, and it is a skill you have to learn if you've been told that you need to trust somebody else's opinion about what your body can and should feel like. But you don't have to get all the way to the sun shining brighter. If you get to the end of crafting or a nice long hug or, a, you know, a laugh, wild laughter of a comedy show or just a seven minute bawling session, sobbing, locked in the bathroom. If you get to the end of one of something like that and you feel a little better, a little relieved, a little more ready to do what comes next, then you've started and you know what direction to continue going. Right. You mentioned stress is not bad for you, but being stuck is bad for you. So you're probably experiencing an unstuckness of a sort in that moment. Exactly. Exactly. So when your body releases the adrenaline and cortisol and glucocorticoids, oh my, because you're being chased by a lion. Uh, if the lion suddenly gets struck by lightning, boom, lion's dead, you're safe. Your body is not just going to be like, and we're safe. We're fine. You still have to tell your body. You're gonna like run back to your village and shout to everyone you know. And only after you tell your body by speaking its language, by going through those actual physical motions, is it gonna know, all right, lion's dead. I didn't have to do anything to make myself safe. Lightning intervened. And yet it takes that doing of a thing to tell your body it's safe. The monitor. The monitor has a special place in my heart. And I'll get to I'll get to why, but but oh, you, good. you first. Yeah, the monitor changed my life too when I learned about it. Its technical name is the discre uh, discrepancy increasing reducing feedback loop, but 
people are like, what? So we just call it the monitor. Um, it's, I like you, you um, also, I think you also refer to it as the, um, or can be referred to as the, I did not write it down. Criterion velocity. It, it, it's measuring criterion velocity. So the brain process of the discrepancy reducing increasing feedback loop measures criterion velocity. It knows uh, what your goal is, how hard you're working toward that goal, and how much progress you're making. And as you can imagine, it prefers when you make a little bit of effort and progress very quickly. That's very satisfying. You're getting to the mall, usually takes 20 minutes. You get there in 15 minutes, you're like, yeah awesome. That's your monitor having its expectations exceeded. So let's say it takes 20 minutes to get to the mall and it takes 30 minutes and you're still trucking traffic. And it's another 10 minutes where you're just sitting there waiting for the accident to get cleared up. And you're like, I will never go to the mall again. Um, that's your monitor telling you, you are not making enough progress. You are working way too hard and we are not getting to the goal. Yeah. So you can manage your minor by telling it, Yo, this thing we're about to go do is going to be like the hardest thing we've ever done in our life and be ready for it to be hard. And then your monitor's going to be like, okay, that's it's rubbing its hands together. Like, you know, preparing, this is going to be really hard and it's ready for all the difficult effort. Then it's not going to be frustrated by the difficult effort because it knows to expect it and you will be progressing at a slow pace, but it'll be the expected case, expected pace. And that is okay does that make sense yeah and i was surprised to to read that it's the brain mechanism that controls that gap experience and the bridging of that gap the imagining of bridging that gap is also what controls the emotion of frustration yeah that it frustration happens when the expected effort and pace does not match does not fit what was the plan right my dad was a professor of counseling psychology, and one night at some point in the 1970s uh, or, or 80s, he had a dream where he was stuck in an enclosed box, and he realized he felt trapped and also anxious about it. And because he was working with dreams quite a bit at the time, uh, he, the way he describes it, sort of a lucid dreaming sort of way, he decided he could exit the box by observing the inside of the box and making certain steps within it that would help him get outside the box. But once he exited, he realized the box was just one of many boxes of, of interconnected boxes and uh, it looked like an endless scaffolding of boxes that extended in all directions, you know, like the steel framing I-beams you see when a skyscraper is being built. And when he woke, he built the scaffolding model out of wood. And then from that point on, he used it as a, a counseling tool in therapy. And I won't get into the detail, about how he used it, uh, but it was essentially a visual tool to externally represent the internal and to aid, as, as you referred to it, the discrepancy reducing, increasing feedback loop process. And the, the part that makes it special for me is he wrote the paper for it, but the publishers wanted him to remove the dream part and he didn't want to, so he never published it. And so that story has a variety of meanings and takeaways for me. Uh, but one of which is don't give up on the inner voice, uh, even if the world is telling you, you need to, in order to advance either your career, uh, or, or advance in, in society in, in some way. And so you know, that brings us to the next tool, which is meaning. I want to add that that 
dream of being stuck in the box and crawling out of the box to discover another box interlocked with another box is a perfect metaphor for the book. Like that's exactly mm. what we talk about. That... If I had to draw a painting of the book, I would try to make it look like that. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, my, my dad's going to love hearing that. <laughs> All right. I love dream work. <laughs> I, you know, I just, I just started working with a, a, ther a new therapist. Uh, and I chose this person because of, uh, that person's specialty in Jungian analysis. Yeah. And um, yeah. maybe we can come back to that later. Let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about meaning, the, the third tool. The third tool is meaning. And a, the research on meaning is a mess. Like they don't have their definitions straight. They haven't clarified their terms. They say that meaning is a feeling of your life having meaning. <laughs> That's not helpful. So we made up our own definition. We said that meaning in life as it functions to make you more healthy is the feeling of being connected to something larger than yourself. And the something larger can be anything. It can be your church family. It can be God. It can be your children. It can be the children you teach. It, it can be anything. It can be, as we use an example in the book, Trekkies and Trek conventions. Um, the problem you get into is when the world comes in to judge your something larger and tell you that it's not good enough. You're not allowed to use that as your something larger, especially if you're a woman, your something larger has to be, you know, caring for the next generation. It can't be about leaving your own legacy. It has to be about nurture and love and not success. Um, but it, if it's going to, you know, improve your health, which it can do, it has to be the thing that you choose it to be. And the thing that's so great is that once you can ignore what the world tells you your something larger should be, it starts to live inside you so that even if you aren't able to access it at every moment, you can't go to church every week or whatever interferes with your connection to the something larger in some kind of physical active way, it starts to live inside you. So you always have access to it. And this is where the singing is going to happen because Lin-Manuel Miranda in the movie Moana puts it really perfectly. In the beginning, she sings, see the line where the sky meets the sea it calls me and at the end of the movie she sings and the call isn't out there at all it's inside me it's like the tide always falling and rising and that's what it's like you carry it in your heart and it reminds you that come what may you'll know the way Oh yeah, Moana. anyway um <laughs> I, just, I had to finish um so that sense of like it's not out there, that thing that calls me, my, my something larger, I carry it with me. And no matter what happens to me, I can always reconnect to it. And it will give me that sense of purpose, that sense that life is good and there's hope and I can move forward no matter what. I love that. Please break out into song at any point. If I could, we, could do, if we want to do the whole thing in, in, in song, let's do it. You'd be hard pressed <laughs> to stop me. And I think another, point that you make, which is powerful, is that meaning isn't always fun. Meaning comes and goes it, and it isn't found. It's made. It's part yes. of that inner voice and everyone has it. And the reason why I want to bring that up is because, you know, we live at a time where narcissism and entitlement is quite rampant. And part of that tendency can uh, lead one to think that meaning should come from outside of me or someone should give me meaning. Mm -hmm. and so I, I, 
I don't know if, if you'd like. I taught a class based on the book last fall. And before each chapter, I asked my students, what does the subject of this chapter mean to you? Before you read, what, what conceptions are you carrying into it? And almost all of them had the sense that someone tells you what life means mm. and you adopt a philosophy. And it was completely new to them, the idea that meaning is a thing that's good for you and you get to choose for yourself by connecting with something larger. In an early draft of the book, it didn't make it to publication, but Emily was calling it vitamin Y. Get it? Like vitamin Y, but W-H-Y? That's ah, funny. <laughs> and it's like vitamin D, where you make it for yourself. And I, I do, I have a song because we were thinking of it that it, it's like leafy greens. You have to like, just because you have green vegetables in your house doesn't mean that you're benefiting from their nutritiousness. You have to eat the vegetables to benefit from them. So I made up a little song that was like, C-A-B-B-A-G-E, meaning is a leafy green. Grow it yourself by listening. Play or connect or sing with me. Uh, my ukulele's in the other room. I mean, it's not even in tune. Anyway, but yeah, you make meaning by playing, by Love. connecting, by, you know, interacting with something larger. I like the leafy green thing. Just because they're in your house, just because you go to church doesn't mean that it's good for you. You have to connect. You have to make the action. Yes. It's about the quality of our connections. Yeah. Doing the thing. Doing the thing. Part two, patriarchy. And let me point out, I don't know if you'll say this, but every time you write the word patriarchy, there's a word in parentheses. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> and I, in the audiobook, I read U chapter four. Spelled U -G -H. And it was very satisfying to say patriarchy Ugh. every time because I know people feel that way about that word. It's a divisive word. It's a word that people have... They think it means that we're blaming men for things or that, you know, women's destinies are not really in their own control and they're, you know, the patriarchy, man. But I mean, it just is a system that's in place. Can you define it? I, your definition, I think, makes it very accessible. Yeah. To define it, we talk about a world where if you're born and you have a body that makes everybody in the room go, it's a boy, then you are given certain kinds of treatment and certain kinds of toys, toys, certain kinds of expectations. And if you are born with a body that makes everybody in the room go, it's a girl, it's a different set of expectations and a different kind of treatment. And those two different treatments and upraising are not equal. It turns out that the kind of upraising we give people who make us go, it's a boy, is ends up with them having access to power and easier access to all the things that are going to make it capable to create change in the world. And the ones who are raised as girls are not given an upraising that allows them access to positions of power where they can create change. Exactly. So we're going to, we're going to hold that, long. we're going to hold that definition of patriarchy in our yeah. minds as we move forward, because it's going to permeate everything we talk about going forward. I suspect. As it permeates everything in the world. Exactly. At least in the Western world, especially United States kind of situation. Exactly. So it features largely in human giver syndrome. What, yes. What is it? Human giver syndrome is a phrase that we adapted from a book called 
Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. In that book, because she's a moral philosopher, she posits a world where there are two kinds of people, human beings who have a moral obligation to be their humanity, to live it, to express it, to require whatever resources it takes to accomplish that, and the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their humanity, their time, their lives, their bodies to the beings. Now, this is undoubtedly a black and white cartoonish version. The world is actually more nuanced than this. Who knew? Um, Emily and I are each married to a cis het white dude who is a natural giver. So no, not all men are human beings who feel entitled to the time and lives and bodies of the women around them. However, if I asked you to guess which one were the men and which one were the women, I bet we'd all be like, oh yeah, that's the givers or that's how we expect women to behave. Right, right. And we... We summarize it as the feeling that you are morally obliged to be at all times pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And if you at any time fail to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, then you deserve to be punished. And that if nobody's around to punish you, you'll go ahead and punish yourself. And if you believe that not only are these things true, but that believing them is normal. It's not a syndrome at all. That's just the way the world is. That's yes, of course, women are expected. That's a symptom of human giver syndrome. And it blinds us to the patriarchy. Us, yeah. I'm assuming the us you mean more, it blinds women more to the patriarchy. Or are you referring to a broader us or... Yeah, I think it's everybody. I mean, we're talking about women in the book specifically, but it absolutely comes to men too. This is also, I mean, this dynamic of some person feeling entitled to the energy, time, life, body of another person happens at all the intersections of oppression. So mm -hmm. white women do it to people of color. It's easy for us to think, oh, well, this person, of course, owes me their time, their life, their body. Not intentionally, not because we actually are white supremacists. We're not belonging to the KKK. But for one minute, our acclimation to society, which is fundamentally a white supremacist society, we forget that we need to fight what our subconscious has learned about white supremacy and something slips out. And we're like, oh, that thing I just said was pretty. Um, sometimes we notice, oh, that behavior really was felt like I was being entitled to that person's time or life or body. Uh, it also happens to members of the LGBTQIA plus community, non-Christians in the Western world end up treated like this. Um, at every intersection of oppression, there's one group of people looking down on another group of people and thinking they are not as worthy, they are not deserving of resources or time or care. And this gets manifested really literally like, when a doctor doesn't understand that a person of color in front of him or a fat person in front of him is not entitled to the same resources or time or care, those people have inferior health care that got exposed to us really dramatically in the pandemic. And uh, boy, if we don't learn from that, what the, what the hell did we just do all this for? Yeah, two different parts in your book on this topic. You mentioned that one aspect of the patriarchy... Ugh. <laughs> in the modern West is that it says it doesn't exist anymore. And then, and then to follow on from your last statement, you know, you, you, you propose a variety of vision statements that are really inspiring. One of them is if the world could stop telling women and people of color, how broken and crazy you are, but you don't need to wait for the world to do so. And 
you have some steps for, for what to do uh, when that occurs, but maybe we can get to that later. And I find it fascinating how you refer to the concept of human beings, the default association with human beings is with men. Yeah. And that the default association with human givers is with women. And then that's also a symptom of the human giver syndrome and coupled with the patriarchy blindness. Yeah. When we've explained human giver syndrome to people in the past, um, and we talk about the human beings versus the human givers, they ask us, well, why didn't Dr. Mann call them the human takers? I think that she was very careful with her language and called them human beings because when we think of human being, we think of default. And that default sense of a man being what a person is, like in the English language, I learned in elementary school when I was supposed to read a poem out loud and it had the phrase, for is it now I am a man? And I was practicing and I said, for is it now I am a woman? And my dad says, no, you can't change it. You just, you just assume that man means everyone. And I was like, it took me a day and a half to be like, man equals everyone. Uh, and then it was a rule. And now, thank goodness, like the rules are changing um, about how we use language. But that sense of default has also been true in medical research for ages. For example, uh, autism research was only done on boys. So funny, they only found the kinds of symptoms they were looking for in boys. And it turns out women don't get autism. Oh, except it turns out that autism manifests differently in women. And we have to look for a different group of symptoms because the whole thing was based in men's. And of course, Emily wrote her whole first book about the ways that sexuality was defined in male terms. Uh, and that so a woman was a failed sexual being because she didn't have the same sexuality as a male. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Did a, I go off topic? I'm so sorry. That's uh, <laughs> No, we're right on topic. That's just a lot. It's a lot of judgment because, and you're talking about safety. Another vision you propose is what if in the absence of the patriarchy, that would then make being a human giver safer? There's like yes. safety, safety in lives and health are at risk. And I, par, partly just, because the, yeah. the, the human giver syndrome blinds us to patriarchy be, simply because it constrains, as you say, our ability to view gender-based inequalities and balances and injustices as unfair. Yeah, we really believe that this construct is correct and right and true. And the people who question it have been outcasts. We now kind of admire some of them as like heroines of the feminist movement. But at the time, they were not heroines of anything. Betty Friedan was ostracized by her neighbors. They hated her. They were embarrassed by her and ashamed. Oh, I just want to add, imagine we've asked students, okay, so how do we fix this human giver syndrome problem? And they're all like, let's make everybody a human being. Everybody gets to have whatever they want. Okay, sure. Think about where that goes. Everyone feels acquisitive and entitled. And, and then we are all using up all the resources and we end up, oh, where we are, which is where we're destroying the planet and killing each other because they have the wrong skin color. Uh, so what if instead we were all givers? What if everyone felt a moral obligation to care for the people around them, to offer other people their time, 
their lives, their bodies. Would they get human giver syndrome? Would they burn out? Would they drain themselves until they're dry? No, because they'd be surrounded by other human givers who felt a moral obligation to care for them. And so nobody falls through the cracks. So it's not that we need to elevate everyone to giver to, to human being status. We need to elevate everyone to feel a moral obligation to care about others. That would be great if like some members of the Senate would feel that way. Maybe we'd get some help. That would be great. Let's, let's make that happen. <laughs> Please do, if you know how. <laughs> get in touch with the voters of Kentucky. Let them know that they have made a mistake. Absolutely. And to continue on this theme of us caring for each other, you present it as this dynamic feed, feedback loop where one takes care of oneself while taking care of others and that they happen simultaneously and you really can't do one without the other. And one of my favorite lines in your book is that wellness is not a state of being, but a state of action and that this is a very active process. Absolutely. Um, a lot of women have asked us, well, I need help, but I don't want to ask my friends for help because they're already so busy. They have so much to do. I don't want to ask anything of them because they're human givers and they don't want to ask and receive, you know, care and resources. But if you remember the time when you offered someone help, when you could do a thing that made their life better, even if it was just a stress reducing conversation where you sat and listened to what they had going on in their life and you were just on their side. At the end of that conversation, for most people, you feel enriched, enlivened, fueled up with more energy. So turning toward each other with kindness and compassion is not a draining activity. For most of humanity, when we turn toward each other and offer our gentility and warmth and shared company, it fuels us and adds more energy to the world and makes us more ready to do more work for more people or to find the energy that we can use in our own lives to help ourselves feel better. Absolutely. Please ask for help. There are people in your life. And you said you didn't want to ask about what it was like to write with my twin sister because we had like other shit to get to. But Emily and I were not close as kids. We didn't grow up close. But through the process of writing the book, the science told us that connection was the answer, that like love is the thing. So we were like, oh, I guess we need to like love each other and stuff. And it was we needed evidence based science to convince us that we were supposed to be sisters. But it turns out that when you have a relationship with someone, you think, oh, I can't ask them, but they are just sitting there waiting, wanting that closeness. They would love it if you called them and said, I love you and I need you. And uh, uh, yes, I want to share in love and relationships because that's, you know, for the vast majority of us, that's how it works. Absolutely. And you know, I just had a thought. I want to go back to meaning. There's a, a part that we didn't cover. You had mentioned that a woman's need for meaning in life is not fundamentally different from a man's, but the obstacles that stand between women and their sense of meaning are different. Yeah, because of patriarchal expectations about what a woman's job is. So for example, there's three ways to um, create meaning uh, when you engage with or something larger. There's um, building a legacy, 
um, or heeding a call, like being of service or just engaging in a loving relationship and nurturing that relationship and the person in it or people in it with you. So these are the three things. Out of those three things, which one are women already expected to do? Yes, it's number three. It's loving and relation, relationships and nurturing. Um, heeding a call of service is also permissible as long as you stay in your place. You are serving someone else, so you are secondary to them. That is also acceptable. But the idea of a woman having a legacy and striving for that as her something larger, as her means of connecting with her something larger, that's not really allowed. Whereas a man is definitely supposed to do that. And a man is probably not supposed to have a loving relationship as his meaning in life. Uh, and that is, you know, this is how misogyny harms men. When we assign these gender roles, we eliminate possibilities for people on either end of the spectrum. And that is cruel and unfair because then a man feels uncomfortable having a loving and tender relationship with his children, being emotional with them, allowing them to express their emotions to him. And that's not fair to the kids and it's not fair to the dad. I agree completely. Thankfully, that's slowly shifting, it seems, in some cultures. A little bit, a little bit. A little bit, bit by bit. I want to go back briefly to human giver syndrome. I was, as reading, as I was reading your book, I was discussing it with my wife, and she really struggles with human giver syndrome, and she has done so with her. She struggled with it her whole life, and it's something that she, when thinking about it, began as a child and you know what her experience was that she just never heeded the call to stop to slow down she didn't go to the doctor she just pushed through and she learned the hard way that if you don't stop your body is going to stop you so she was forced to stop and this began shortly after we were married and her experience uh, started with her adrenal glands and then ultimately onto the thyroid gland leading to Hashimoto's. And you know, she discovered that you know, stress dials down the thyroid function and the thyroid puts temporary hold on functions that require a lot of energy, for example, the immune system, reproduction, and just so, so much more. I know more about that physiology than, than I ever had in the past. And so I saw firsthand just how extremely debilitating adrenal fatigue and exhaustion can be and how much it can completely take over. And, you know, for anyone listening who just may be stuck inside their home, in bed, in a lot of pain, having panic attacks, brain fog, this is where my wife was and sometimes is. And, you know, her journey started at first being on the wrong thyroid medication where the wrong either level or type of T4 was just putting extra fuel on, on her uh, adrenal glands. And so it has been a long journey. I mean, we're now, I think, I think she's now seven, eight year years into trying to r remedy this. And she's at a point now where it's, it's, it's somewhat manageable, uh, but she's always looking for the silver lining and the blessings in, in, in this experience. And, you know, where she's at now, she really has an acute awareness of what she can and can't get away with. Like she works constantly on making clear what her boundaries are and, and uncovering new boundaries and saying no and being okay with saying no and with what drains her and what fills her. And you know, I don't know if you have a comment on that, but I, I thought as she was speaking about this with me while I was reading your book, I thought of the forced swim test done on rats and how male rats respond 
to that test differently than female rats. So there's a big difference here with respect to gender. Yeah. We're not sure how much of it is biological, how much is social. I mean, there just there hasn't been that much research yet, so we don't know. But I have two pieces of good news for your wife. Number one, she's not alone. When we started reading writing the book, Emily thought that my experience of being hospitalized with stress-induced illness was really extreme. And then we started talking about the book in front of rooms full of women, and they'd come up to us after and be like, yep, that was my experience. I was hospitalized for five weeks. I was hospitalized for 14 days. They didn't know what was wrong with me. They told, told me to go home. Uh, it, it happens to so many women. Um, so she's not alone, unfortunately, but that means that there's a community of people who are going through the same thing. And that is of value. Thing number two is that if she's always looking for the silver lining in things, that sounds like she's a natural optimist and natural optimists tend to get better faster, tend to have better health. So that's gonna be really good for her health. She's already got a resource inside her that is making her life a little less painful than it would be if she were tended more towards pessimism. Um, I have two recommendations also. I don't know if you want to include these in the podcast, but like specifically, there's this app called Curable, which is like a two neuroscientists who handle pain made this app to guide people in chronic pain through, you know, the pain to like reduce their experience of pain. I have been using it for long COVID and it's really helpful. It's evidence-based and science-filled, but also really accessible maybe worth a try. Um, the other thing is the book, uh, First We Make the Beast Beautiful by Sarah Wilson. Mm. She has had eating disorders and Hashimoto's and she talks about her experience dealing with them and how much she needs to run and how much she needs to structure her life around these problems. And it's, um, you know, she is a work in progress, Sarah Wilson. So this is not a book with like a, and now everything's fine kind of ending, yeah. but it is a book that makes you feel seen and heard if you're a woman who struggles with, you know, deep pain. Yeah. Being seen and heard and knowing that you're not alone can change everything. So something that I think it's helpful for men to know, and particularly white men to know is the way you refer to womanhood and simply being a woman, as you describe is in and of itself, a chronic low level stress. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, this sort of way of framing it comes from research on rats. Uh, when they try to study what stress does to a body, they study it on rats. And one of the ways they study it is by tilting a rat's cage by 45 degrees or putting water on their nest. Um, and these things are not dangerous to the rat. They're just annoying and they make life harder than it should be. And that's what it's like to be a woman in the patriarchy. Ugh. Uh, it's a matter of getting your keys ready when you go out to the parking lot so you can punch the predator in the face with your keys. It's a matter of wondering, is my hemline too high? Is it too low? What's somebody going to think of me because of what I'm wearing? Am I going to put myself in danger because of what I'm wearing? These are things that men never think about. Like They just take for granted. They're just going to go to their car and it'll be fine. And all these little stressors are happening inside women's minds all the time. And it just makes life harder than it should be. Those poor rats. You want to go up to them and say, yo, dude, rat, this game is rigged. You need to, to get out. Life isn't supposed to be like that. So I, one of the things I hope the book does is tell women 
this game is rigged. All that stuff, all that extra work you do, you're not supposed to have to do that. The world's supposed to be a just, equitable place where your life is as easy as a man's life, but it's not. So if you're aware the game is rigged, it's kind of easier to tolerate because you go, aha, that's not the way the world's supposed to be. That's an example of the rigging. And to bring it back to the beginning of our conversation, if you aren't aware of all those stressors piling up, and if you're not at the end of the day or at some point throughout the week completing the stress cycle, then as you say, that stress is just sitting in your body and building up. Yeah, added on to that, the fact that not only you only not being believed when you tell people, I don't feel right, something's wrong with me, and they go, oh, it's just stress. And so you have something wrong with you. You have human giver syndrome. You're not convinced that you're worthy of resources to heal yourself. And then you're not being believed anyway. So like you're starting to doubt, do I really feel this way? So you're being gaslit also. Yeah, it's super stressful. But can, I, can we go to like a little bit of good news? Because I feel like this got really dark really fast. Let's go to some good news. I also, want to get, is, I also want to get to the headwinds, tailwinds asymmetry. Yeah, that is a solution to this because we were talking to white men about like alerting to the fact that like women have different lives from you. They face different stressors that you just don't know about. Um, so when a woman tells you like, this is how it feels for me, this is why I act this way, men often think like, well, we don't need feminism anymore. Like sexism has gone. White people, so many white people think that racism is over. So here's an actual concrete task you can do anytime to make sure that you are not part of the problem. Uh, and the first one is called the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry. It's the fact that, so Emily rides a bike. So when she's riding uphill towards her goal, she's like, okay, I'm riding uphill towards my goal. It's mostly flat though, just feels uphill. And then when she's going home and she's tired and she's like, oh, it feels like it's uphill both ways. Um, we are not aware of the times when we're actually going downhill because we're still putting effort in and the effort takes our attention and we have to pay attention to the things that are hard because those take, you know, cognitive processing energy. And so we just don't notice when we get a little help from behind. If we have a tailwind behind us, we don't go, oh, thank goodness for that tailwind all of a sudden. All we notice is what's hard for us. And that makes sense cognitively that we would do that. But if we take a minute to notice what our tailwinds are, what the gifts are that are making our lives a little bit easier, then we can start to see, oh, somebody's report of their headwind, the things that's making their life harder, that is also true. Just because I am working really hard doesn't mean that maybe other people have different challenges and actually believe them and notice. Right. And you extend the imagery or metaphor to you know, white men growing up on an open level field where white men traverse that field in the form of one that's much steeper and rougher terrain where women and people of color on a, the words you use are a cliffside over the ocean battered by winds and waves. And the world wonders, why is this tree that's growing on this, in this kind of environment so bent and gnarled? Yeah, this is a less sort of active metaphor, more of like static. When someone's talking to you and they tell you, I'm afraid of the police because they're black and they have to teach their kid how to act around the police so they don't get accidentally or on purpose shot by a police person. Um, they're not doing that because their life is the same as yours. 
They have actual, real, different experiences. So if we imagine people as trees, yeah, the white dudes are mostly growing up. I mean, they have to grow. It takes energy. It takes work. They have to fight for, you know, sunshine to make sure that the tallest tree gets some, like they have effort they have to put in. They do. But they're on a level plane where they have access to all of that. And in this metaphor, yeah, especially women of color growing up on this cliff. So when you take that tree that grew up on that cliff and it moves to the level playing field, everybody thinks it's level, but they are bent at an angle and twisted and gnarled. And they report, uh, look, at, I'm all twisted and gnarled. My life has been really hard. I have trouble with assimilating into this culture that you're demanding that I assimilate to. And it's not because they're dumb or lazy or broken. It's because they had to fight so much harder and it shaped them into something that is not the same shape as everybody else. And instead of thinking like, you stupid tree, just be tall. Can we please be like, I see that you are a tree who's had to work really hard and I'm going to help by conforming myself partly to what your needs are. Oh my God, wouldn't that be amazing if the people in positions of power would not insist that people not in power conform to their expectations, but we'd be like, hey, somebody's different from me. Maybe I can ask them what they need and like meet them halfway. That'd be great. Uh, and also just respect the fact that this is a person who is what she is, not because she's making up all her difficulties. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have gotten into that shape unless she had genuinely faced all of those trials and tribulations and come out the other side, able to make her way to that level playing field. Wow. Exactly. You challenge all of us to say, instead of wondering why they aren't thriving on the, on the level field, imagine how the field itself can be changed to allow everyone to thrive. Did we say that? That was really good. You did say that, <laughs> word for word, page okay. 95. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Another vision you share that if, if only the world could stop telling women and people of color how broken and crazy they are, you don't need to wait for the world to do that. There are steps to do so. Obviously, so much in the world has to change, no question. That could be a whole podcast, a whole semester course, a whole PhD. Lifetime. Lifetime, yeah. exactly. Generations. Um, but you do provide some steps, and we can't get into all of them, and we won't here. You have to buy the book. But I'll just, I'll just paraphrase, like know the game is rigged, complete the stress cycle, use planful problem solving and positive reappraisal to keep your monitor satisfied and engage your something larger so that you can ultimately heal the human giver syndrome. Yeah, absolutely. Because only then do you get to a place in your life where you have enough wellness, enough health, enough energy to contribute and fight for anything else. Exactly. Now, this is where it gets interesting, and we're going we're gonna to wrap it up here. A huge part of the journey of navigating, avoiding, managing burnout is going to parts of ourselves that we may not want to address, shadow aspects of ourselves, the unconscious, and you introduce the mad woman in the attic. Can you share briefly what that is. And I'm just so curious because in at one part of the book, you ask the reader to personify or to give image to, or to, um, illustrate what their mad woman or mad person in the addict is. 
Yeah. The Metal in the Attic is a literary construct, really. It's based in Jane Eyre. Spoiler alert, Jane Eyre falls in love with Rochester, but he's already married and his wife is um, insane and he keeps her in a room in his attic. Like, but don't we all? Really? That's what we all have. Um, and this is a Jungian way of reading into literature, of seeing the book itself as a as, a, as an individual and all the characters are parts of the mind. So this mad woman in the attic uh, is, her job is to bridge the chasm between who we are and who the world expects us to be. Um, so uh, lots of other writers have written about this. Um, Amy Poehler in her book, Yes Please, describes it as this like creeping, sultry voice telling her you're too fat no you have a funny looking face like that most women agree it kind of starts sort of around middle school my experience is much earlier than that um emily has a very clear personification of her madwoman and it's Teka from moana um she's like angry and filled with lava and like very much person shaped for me that thing that tells me that here is a gap between who I am and who the world expects me to be comes as a physical sensation of vertigo. You know what a dolly zoom is? Alfred Hitchcock did it a lot where the camera um, zooms in with the lens to a character's face, but they're actually pulling the camera physically away from the actor. Mm. So the face stays the same size, but the background expands. That's a dolly zoom. And it's the feeling of vertigo, which also Alfred Hitchcock was great at portraying in film. Um, combined with a visual image, a vision really, of two little like squirrely dust balls, one really small and one really big, and the sense of tension between them that like one is trying to dominate the other and the other one's resisting. So I have this image and this physical sensation. And now that I know that that's the mad woman in the attic, I'm not all befuddled by like, what's going on here? Like I can say, oh, mad woman, and I'm experiencing a disconnect between who I am and who the world expects me to be. And it's much easier not to panic or freak out or be oh, like, I have to change something right now. And because the mad woman's job is to figure out whose fault is it? Is it your fault because you don't conform to what the expectations are? Or is it the world's fault for having, can I say bullshit? Go for it. <laughs> it's the world's <laughs> fault for having bullshit expectations that no one should have to conform to. And um, those are two very aggressive ways of treating any kind of stimulus. And what we recommend is to turn toward the mad woman with kindness and compassion. Lots of other advice talks about, well, you need to ignore that voice. Don't listen to the self-critical voice in your head. But I mean, if you were freaking out and trying to tell somebody, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And they were like, shut up. How would you feel? You'd be all frustrated and mad. And that's not the way to make a nice relationship and a nice unified personality, is it? So if instead somebody's freaking out and going, this is wrong, this is wrong, and you turn toward them and say, oh yeah, this is wrong. Tell me what's wrong about it. Why are you freaking out? And then you say, so I hear what you're saying. You're trying to protect me. You're trying to help me conform so that I fit in. You're trying to keep me safe. Thank you so much for that. The thing is that you're a mad woman and you're doing it wrong. And I'm a grown up and I have control over my life and I'm going to fix this. So thank you very much. Here's a great big giant hug. I'm grateful. I love you. Have a seat. I'm going to take care of this. It's okay. And I suspect for some that's easier than others based on the concept we brought up earlier, the observational distance, the ability to kind of 
look at yourself, a meta awareness uh, process, you know, because part of what you say about the mad woman is the tragedy of the mad woman in the addict is that she whips us and we achieve as a result. And so we think the whipping itself is part of the cause needed for our future success. So we're almost uh, self-identified in a sense with that. So I, I assume for, for many, it's really hard to even know that that's occurring. And earlier you'd mentioned therapy and I wonder how much therapy helped you or do you recommend it for others uh, when in fact the distance between the sense of who I am, the I and the mad woman is, is really not great at all and just assumed and experienced as one. Yeah. If anyone's thinking, maybe I should go to therapy, you should definitely go to therapy. And don't just like settle for the first therapist you meet with, like shop around, find somebody you click with, find somebody that works. Um, I've been in therapy for basically 20 years solidly and uh, it, it kept me alive. I have clinical depression, I'd be dead right now if I hadn't been in therapy and on medication. So like, you know, it's a complicated picture. And for me, creating observational distance between me and depression was profound, life-saving because mm -hmm. you start, you hear the voice of depression saying, stop, mm. give up, don't. And when you learn that that voice is not me. It's not part of me. It's not built in. It's not inevitable. It's the voice of depression. And I can create a distance between myself and it and not take it with me to the grave, but instead look at it from a distance and be like, okay, depression. Okay. When my therapist first told me I could do this, I did not believe her. Mm -hmm. I thought depression's part of me and I have to own it and get rid of it. And she was like, no, no, Depression has a message for you. Depression has something to teach you. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Don't tell me depression's good. There's nothing good about depression, you mean person. Uh, and she told me the next week she thought I'd never come back. But <laughs> it turned out it took me like two and a half more years. But it turned out I was like, oh, depression had something to teach me. And so if it's, if it's the self-criticism that's like really debilitating, absolutely. Creating observational distance and space between you and the mad woman so that you can see, oh, she's a mad woman. I don't, I should not do what she says. She's not part of me. She's a process that's trying to help me in certain situations, but like I am capable of making my own decisions and I don't have to be like sunk down into that abyss that is between who I am and who the world expects me to be. I have two Mad Woman songs, but alas, my ukulele is in the other room. Oh. I can give you YouTube links to the videos. Let's do that. We'll put those in the show notes. Okay. And I suspect the Mad Woman has sometimes multiple voices or multiple characters. And yeah, uh, there might be different Mad Woman going on for different parts of your life. Uh, everybody's experience is going to be different. I mean, Emily and I are identical twins who are raised in the same household and our experience of the mad woman is completely different. Hers is very personified, very structured. She can have a chat with it. Mine is a physical sensation and a vision and there is no conversing with it. There's just me recognizing and then moving on on my own. Yeah, everything's going to be different. Exactly. This is another part where it's like, God, I wish there was just an answer I could give you to tell you this is what you should do. But if you have to like turn toward your own difficult feelings with kindness and compassion, I mean, 
like, I wish it was easier. I wish the answer was vegetables, you know, but it's not. <laughs> but that's what's it's so introspection and patience. But that's what's so genius and helpful about your book is for someone willing to go down this journey in, in an authentic way and to really, as, as you put it, face the truth. That is the journey towards living an examined, fulfilled life where burnout is less of a feature. And the good news is that this sounds very long and complicated, and I acknowledge that it sounds so hard and like mm -hmm. so much work. But once you start, you open one door and it opens possibilities to the next door and it, it gets more compelling and you start to feel better and you're like, I want more of this. And your body, you learn to listen to it and it tells you, this is what I need next. And it, it gets easier as you go along. It's, it is a huge long journey, but it's one that is downhill into out of the woods and into the you know meadows and the hills are alive with the sound of music <laughs> <laughs> and then you say and this is this is counterintuitive but so powerful and, and so true i believe that the cure for burnout is not self-care it is it's all of us caring for each other because what good does it do you to take a bubble bath and get a pedicure or even get a good night's sleep if you're surrounded by people who are saying, oh, you slept nine hours? Oh, well, good for you. Self-care is so important. Good for you. I was up till three making cupcakes for Becky's birthday party. But, you know, good for you for getting that sleep. <laughs> exactly. That's not that's not stress reducing anymore. Then your stress because your sleep becomes a source of stress. We need to all care for each other and give to each other and tell each other that we are deserving of love and care and resources mm -hmm. because we are, we yeah. don't have to change or improve ourselves or be anything in particular before we deserve love and care. Everybody deserves love and care right now, just as they are. I love that. You do address sleep quite a bit in the book and you refer to it also as the invisible, There's literally a whole chapter as the invisible workplace, but we won't get into that. Yeah. I have a final question for you. First of all, uh, is there anything else you'd like to discuss or anything you'd like to promote and, and where can people find you? No, I mean, you've totally picked up the main themes that we want to make sure that people take away from the book, which are that wellness is not a state of being. It's a state of action. It's the freedom to oscillate through all the states of being human. And self-care is not the cure for burnout. The cure for burnout is all of us taking care of each other. Beautiful. I love that. Okay. How is the interconnectivity between your own self-care in the way that we define self-care just now and care for our planet evident in your life or another way of thinking about it in what ways do you connect with our planet and how have these connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment i'm a little afraid that this is going to sound a little far-fetched to people but i'm gonna be honest that one of the first things one of the first steps i took toward wellness when I was between one hospitalization and the other was I started learning Tai Chi. And one of the fundamental concepts of Tai Chi is that Tai Chi is the mutual interplay of opposites. It's earth and sky and up and down and body and soul. And it's the place where those things meet. And this philosophy changed my life. It changed my outlook on who I was and what my relationship was to the world around me. And once I knew that I am 
the earth. God, it feels like I went too far there, but it really does feel that way. Like each of us is part of the earth. The illusion of separation is a construct of society. There is no difference. It's just that our minds can't handle the reality of oneness for very long. But the truth is that we are all one with each other, with the planet, with the sky. It's an illusion that we are separate. If you imagine the Tai Chi with like the two paisleys, black and white, and then there's a little circle of white and the black and black and the white. But the thing is, it's not two halves. It's one whole thing with the opposites contained within. So once I care for myself and I care for my family and I care for the earth, that is all nurturing myself. And when I care for myself and nurture myself, I'm caring for everyone around me at the same time. And when everybody cares for me, they're caring for themselves. And for it's a, it's Tai Chi is the answer. Does that? Did I go too far? Was that Beautiful. goofy? No, you did not go too far. I'll go there with you. I am the earth. We are the earth. We are nature. Spot on. That was beautiful. Amelia, thank you so much. I had such a wonderful, fun time with you today. Truly my pleasure. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, our Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, Take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Mm -hmm.